Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome. Happy Sunday. Uh, today's scripture reading comes from Luke chapter 22, verses 66 to 71, and Luke chapter 23, verses 1 through 5. This is found on page 883 in your pew Bible. If you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to take one as a gift from us. When they came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council, and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered them, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Kevin. Well, good morning to each of you. We're so glad that you're here with us today. My name is Bill Gorman. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Community. And uh, just delighted that you're with us. Whether this is the first time you've ever been at Christ Community, or maybe this is your first Sunday back. Uh, maybe it's been a year since you've been here. Uh, if that's the case, we're so glad uh, that you are here with us in this space today. And we're continuing together in our series in the Gospel of Luke. And uh, we're actually drawing near to the end here. Uh, we're going to wrap up on Easter. And so we are drawing near to the end of this, this gospel story that Luke has been telling us. And just want to pray now as we continue to hear what Luke is saying and ask that the Spirit would be at work in a fresh way uh, today through these words that he inspired so many years ago. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would be present to us uh, in the word today that we would see Jesus afresh. That just as your Holy Spirit inspired Luke as he wrote down these words 2,000 years ago, that your Spirit would be present and active, making them new and fresh and applicable to us in this moment now. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, what would you do if you were wrongfully convicted of a crime, and, and not just any crime, but, but a crime that carried with it a, a capital sentence, a, a crime that you could be put to death for. I mean, can you imagine? You're, you're at home one day, or maybe walking down the street, and, and the police come and, and knock on the door and they explain that you're under arrest for this crime and they put you in handcuffs and, and take you away and there's a trial and there's a prosecutor and attorneys and witnesses who all say that you did this heinous, awful thing that you know you didn't do. And then the jury comes back and the verdict is guilty. And the judge delivers the sentence of death. I, I 
can't even really begin to wrap my mind. Uh, all the while, you, you know you did not do this. Well, these people on the screen here, they, they don't have to imagine that scenario. Uh, this is from a picture from the most recent issue of National Geographic magazine that did a feature story on people who have been sentenced to death but were later exonerated. It's incredible stories with some incredible photographs. I spent a lot of time this week looking at those faces, looking into those eyes, wondering what it must have been like to know that you were innocent and yet to hear that guilty verdict and, and not just guilty verdict, but the sentence being death. Uh, Kirk Bloodsworth was one of them. Uh, Kirk was, was uh, in 1984, was charged with and then convicted with killing a child. And he was arrested on, on an anonymous tip that someone said he looked like a police sketch of the suspect. And this is what the article writers say. They say this. Bloodsworth bore little resemblance to the suspect in the police sketch. No physical evidence linked him to the crime. It had, he had no prior criminal record, yet Bloodsworth was convicted and sentenced to death based primarily on the testimony of five eyewitnesses, including an eight-year-old and a ten-year-old, who said they could place him near the murder scene. And witness misidentification is a factor in many wrongful convictions. And in 1993, Kirk became the first person in the nation to be exonerated from death row on DNA evidence. Can you imagine those, those years spent facing that? Uh, or, or what about Kwame Ajamu's story? Kwame was only 17 years old in 1975 when he was arrested for killing, allegedly, a money order salesman. 17 years old, no prior criminal record, no contact with the police, but a 13-year-old boy said he saw him on the corner beating this guy up. And, and even though there was no physical evidence, forensic evidence that, that linked Kwame to that murder, even though there were other witnesses who said that he was not on the street corner at that time, that he was somewhere else at that time of day, at 17 years old, he was convicted of murder and sentenced to death. He would go on to spend another 27 years in prison before enough questions came out about his case that he was paroled. But even then, it would be 12 more years before the state of Ohio would completely exonerate him of all charges. When it came out that this 13-year-old this boy later came to the police and recanted his statement and had tried to say that it wasn't true, but all that had been suppressed, It was, he, he, Kwame went to jail at 17, didn't get out until he was 44 years old. I'm, I'm going to be 39 in two months, which means if I went to jail at the same time as he did, I'd, I'd still have five more years before I'd be released, another 17 before I'd be declared innocent. And it's just in, incredible stories, right? How would you feel in those situations? 
And so I'm, I'm grateful that there are organizations like the Innocence Project, like the Equal Justice Initiative, who, who work hard to, to, when there seems like there's an irregularity in a case, to, to find out, is there something here? Especially when someone maintains their innocence. And that kind of work is truly gospel work. And as truly unjust and just stunning as those stories are, the story that we find here at the end of Luke is a story of wrongful conviction and injustice on the scale like no other. Like no other. Because everything in this story points to Jesus' innocence. And yet, the presumption of guilt Corruption, indifference, and evil all lead to a guilty conviction. Everybody in this story puts Jesus on trial. And it sort of plays out exactly as you would expect in a situation where there's a presumption of guilt and corruption and power and indifference with one major difference. And it's the difference that I want us to pay attention to this morning. It's the difference I want us to notice this morning. So if you haven't yet in your Bible, I'd invite you to turn, whether in the Pew Bible or pull it up on your phone, but navigate your way to Luke chapter 22. We're going to start at the end of the chapter in verse 26. And, or excuse me, verse 66. And so as we come to the end of this chapter, what we're going to do is we're just going to sit in this story for a while because it's such an incredible story. I just want us to feel and to experience the story together. And then at the end, we'll sort of make three brief observations, three brief insights about what's happening in this story. So here we are, Luke chapter 22, verse 66. And the story picks up, it's the morning after Jesus has been arrested. So the night before, he's praying with his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas shows up with a crowd, with a mob. He betrays Jesus with a kiss. They take Jesus, bind him, and they take him to the house of the high priest. Peter's following along. He's in the courtyard. They're, they're questioning him, beating him up. Some people around the fire where Peter's standing, they begin to say, hey, weren't you with Jesus? And you know, we looked at this last week. Peter denies him three times. So Jesus has been betrayed, arrested, denied. He's been beat up. And now the morning comes. And the religious leaders are going to take him from this high priest's home to the, the council. They're going to gather to pronounce his guilt. Because here's the thing. These religious leaders, they have been wanting to get rid of Jesus for a while now. They hate him and they want him dead. But Jesus is also popular. A lot of people like him. And so they're not in a place where they can just kind of have him assassinated. They're just going to kill him. They're, they're not willing to do that. They're not willing to corrupt themselves in that kind of way. Plus, I think they were concerned that there would be maybe an uprising or a rejection of them. So they've got to find a way to get rid of Jesus that doesn't cause a backlash against them. And so they come up with a two-step plan. The first step in the plan is we've got to get Jesus to commit or accuse him of a 
capital offense under Jewish law. That's the first step. If we can get him a capital, that, that means other people will say, okay, this guy, he can't be who he says he is. He's committed a capital offense under Jewish law. That's step one. And you see their strategy. They want to go for blasphemy. That's their strategy. Verse 67. They sell him as he's there, as they, as he's there in this council city. If you are the Christ, if you're the Messiah, that's what Christ means. If you are the anointed one, if you are the Messiah, the king, tell us. They're going for the blasphemy strategy. But Jesus knows, verse 68, 67, 69 here, he, he knows that they're not interested in finding out the truth. But he said to them, if, you, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Again, Luke has gone and pains to show us, whether it's in his arrest or in this moment, that Jesus is in control. He knows what's happening. He knows that these people are not interested in the truth. They are not going to answer his questions. They're not going to listen to what he says. And so rather than respond, he simply quotes from the Old Testament prophet Daniel about the Son of Man reigning in the power of God. Now, these religious leaders in this moment, they, they have to be thrilled at this. I mean, this is, this is too easy because they immediately get what Jesus is doing. He's quoting this Daniel prophecy and saying, this applies to me. Here, here it is. This, is. this is the blasphemy they've been looking for. This was, this was too easy. But it's still kind of indirect. So they want to get him on the record. You know, this is a courtroom. They want to get him on the record actually saying it. So you look down here, it says, for the record, you know, are you the son of God? Verse 70, are you the son of God then? And I love how Jesus responds here. Jesus, who's, you know, he's always, he's brilliant, he's wise, he responds to any question with just the perfect answer, and he does that here. He simply says, you say that I am. Again, if you kind of imagine the courtroom setting, you can imagine sort of Jesus there. They're saying, are you the son of God? Then tell us. And he says, well, yes, I, I am. <laughs> but let the record show you said it before I did. You said it before I did. So they go on. Step one is complete. We've got him. Blasphemy. He's making these outrageous claims. He's a human being, that he's the Messiah, that he's connected to the Son of Man in power. Okay, check. We can, that's a capital offense. We, we can get him on that. But now for step two of the process, actually executing Jesus. And this is tricky because for all the power and influence that these leaders had, they did not have the power in this moment under the authority of the Roman government to commit executions to actually carry out capital punishment. Only the Roman authorities could do that. So step two of the process, we've got him on the religious conviction, but now we have to convince the Roman government that Jesus needs to be dealt with in a permanent way. And so they go to Pilate to get this work done. This is chapter 23, verse 1. Then the whole company of them, the council, arose and brought him, Jesus, before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute, that's the idea of paying taxes, to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. 
is Christ the king. They go to Pilate. Now, who is Pilate? Well, Pilate is the Roman governor of Judea. So he is part of the Roman governmental authority structure. He's leading, he's the governor over this territory. He's got a reputation for being a very pragmatic, violent, brutal leader who just kind of is willing to crack down. Normally, he's not in Jerusalem. So he's here in Jerusalem now. now. Normally, he lives in the, the governor's palace in Caesarea. But he's here in Jerusalem this week. Why? Because this is Passover week. What does Passover commemorate? God's liberation of his people from Exodus. So this is kind of a time of year where those who want to cause riots, maybe want to start a revolution, an insurrection, this is kind of the time of year. Everybody comes to the city from all over. There's a lot of people there. This is a moment of of when God is liberated in the past. This is kind of a moment that is ripe for unrest, for violence. And so Pilate is making his presence known here. The Jewish leaders get this too. I mean, they're savvy. They know the stakes are high for Pilate this week. This is one of those weeks where anything that could go wrong potentially would go wrong. And Pilate is nervous. He doesn't want anything to go wrong during this time. So there he is. They're making these claims. But here's the deal. Pilate couldn't care less about blasphemy charges, about the prophet Daniel, about what, that's just this religious Jewish stuff that he doesn't give, he doesn't give any care about. But the religious leaders do know that what Pilate would care about is someone setting up themselves as another king or telling people not to pay taxes to Caesar. Now, for the record, Jesus never told people not to pay taxes. In fact, quite the opposite, right? I mean, he actually says, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. But on this claim of Jesus being a king, again, it's a different kind of deal. But Jesus, we looked at this a few weeks ago, when he enters into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, it is clear, the religious leaders get it, that he is making himself out. He's going in the mold of what a king of Israel would look like. So there he is. They're trying to get Pilate on this. Pilate, you know, this guy's a king. He's the threat. But then you read in verses 3 and 4. Listen to this. Then Pilate said to the chief priests, or he says, verse 3, and Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And again, Jesus answers him, you have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. I find no guilt in this man. Again, Pilate, he's done and had to deal with insurrectionists, rioters, murderers before. Like, this is his day-to-day job. And he takes one look at Jesus and says, he doesn't fit the, this guy. I mean, he might be crazy. He might be kind of one of these religious prophet types who's a little, you know, maybe he's a little crazy. But I've, I've seen insurrectionists. I've seen political revolutionaries. This guy's not one of them. I mean, Pilate says right here, I find no guilt in this man. And Pilate wants none of this. But verse 5, but they were urgent, saying, he stirs up the people, teaching all throughout Judea, from Galilee even to this place. 
They're saying, look, he, look at all these people who have gathered here in Jerusalem. He's even been up. He started up in Galilee. And now people are following him, not only from Galilee and Nazareth and all those places, but from all around Judea. He's getting popular. He's gaining a following. All this. And Pilate's listening to this. But there's one thing that stands out to him in that. One word. And the word is Galilee. He hears the word Galilee. He's like, oh, Galilee. That is King Herod's jurisdiction. Right? Paul, you know, Herod, he's a, he's a savvy politician. Wait a second. And, and normally, Herod wouldn't be in Jerusalem either. He's the king up in, in Galilee. Now, Herod is kind of a puppet king under the authority of the Roman government. Again, there's kind of the governmental structures are complex. But he's, he's a king under the rule of Rome. But he still has some authority and some power. And so Pilate says, this is my opportunity. I can hand off this guy to Herod. And Herod, again, because it's Passover week, happens also to be in, in Jerusalem. So they send Jesus across town to Herod. Now Herod, we've heard about him along the story in the Gospel of Luke so far. He has been intrigued by Jesus, and even kind of, it seems like he's afraid of Jesus. It's, you pick up some, like, he's even maybe a little bit superstitious at times, but he's been wanting to meet Jesus. And so he's happy about this. Plus he's kind of happy that maybe Pilate's given him kind of a, a grown-up problem to solve. <laughs> So they take Jesus over to Herod. Herod questions him, asks him, but he's not interested in substance. Herod wants a sign. He says, I want to see, you know, do a miracle. He wants to see Jesus perform. And Jesus just remains silent. And Herod questions him for a long time. Finally, he gets bored with it. Jesus won't say anything. And so then they just start mocking him. Eventually, they, they dress him up in a robe like a king, and they send him back to Pilate. And Luke tells us that that day that Pilate and Herod, who had formerly been enemies, became friends. I love the way Eugene Peterson uh, renders that in the message. He says they became thick as thieves that day. But now Pilate is stuck with Jesus again. And the religious leaders are just continuing to insist and insist. They make their final case. This guy is guilty. He's misleading the people. He's going to start a riot. He's going to start a revolution. Pilate, you've got to deal with him. Verse 13, Pilate called together all the chief priests and rulers of the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who is misleading the people. After examining him before you, behold, I do not find this man guilty of any of your charges against them. Him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. So this is basically, I, I, I'll beat him up a little bit, rough him up, make sure he knows who's boss. It's Rome, not him. And we'll send him on his way. But he's not guilty of any of the stuff that you're saying. This is the second time now that Jesus or Pilate has declared that Jesus is innocent. But again, this is not possible for the Jewish leaders to let go. This is step two of the plan. If Pilate says he's innocent, then the whole thing falls apart. They've got to get Pilate to say this guy is guilty or at least give in and decide to kill him anyway. 
And Pilate, again, he's a savvy operator here. And he looks out, he's like, I know Jesus is popular with a lot of the crowd. So he kind of bypasses the rulers for a second. And he just appeals to the crowd and says, would you like for me to release to you a prisoner? Because apparently there was a tradition at this time that around Passover, Pilate would release a prisoner to the people. And he's thinking, yeah, the crowd's going to shout for Jesus. This is the way I get out of this. Is I get the crowd to say, we want Jesus. Then the religious leaders get kind of shouted down by the crowd. And then I can be done. I can wash my hands of this. But again, the religious leaders, this is the plan. Step two has to take place. And so they infiltrate the crowd and get the crowd to start shouting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify Jesus, and release for us Barabbas. So they say, we want Jesus crucified and give us Barabbas as the prisoner to be released. Now Barabbas was apparently uh, a revolutionary and an insurrectionist who had committed murder. Both of those were capital offenses in Rome, and so he's sitting there on death row awaiting execution, awaiting his fate. And the crowd says, we want Barabbas. Barabbas. Pilate sees his whole plan is now backfiring on him, and he declares Jesus' innocence for a third time. Verse 22, a third time he said to him, why? Why crucify him? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish him and release him. But their voices were more urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And then Luke says literally that their voices prevailed. That their voices prevailed. That the voice of the crowd, the cries of the mob, prevailed over justice. Pilate is sitting there. He literally has a person who three times, he said, this person is innocent, has not committed any crime. He's got over here a person who is guilty of two crimes, deserving of death. And the crowd is calling for one to be released, calling for the other to be executed. What's Pilate going to do? I mean, it's hard to have too much sympathy for him, I suppose, in this moment. But you can sense where Pilate is at. There is a chanting mob. The city is full of people. If he sticks by Jesus in this moment, there could be a riot. There could be an uprising. This is a major problem for him, for his career, for stability, maybe for his own neck. So the people's voices prevail. In verse 25, and he released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to do to their will. There it is. Step two, check. It's done. He's gone now for this place of having an innocent man and a guilty man and he condemns the innocent and releases the guilty. 
And what happens next in the rest of the story is for our sermon next week. But notice that Jesus, I mean, Luke goes out of his way to record here that Jesus is innocent. And not just innocent in a general sense, right? He's not just innocent of the crimes that he's being accused of, of misleading the people or of telling people not to pay tribute to to Caesar. I mean, he's innocent of those particular things that he's been accused of in this moment. That is clear. But also, Jesus is the only innocent human. He's never done anything wrong or sinful in his life ever. So not only is he innocent of the particular charges in this moment, he's the only truly innocent person who has ever lived. And they kill him anyway. I mean, in so many ways, this is just like the stories that we, we began with. Right? This kind of miscarriage of justice, corruption, except for one major difference. Remember I said at the beginning, it's the difference that I want us to pay attention to this morning. What's the difference? Well, I imagine if I were in that place, arrested, accused, tried, convicted of a crime I know I did not commit, sentenced to death, that I would be making a ton of noise, right? I'd be, I'd be crying out. I'd be weeping. I'd be calling witnesses, lawyers, fighting, right? Well, what, what else can you do? It's what you have to do in that moment. But Jesus is utterly silent. And it's the silence of Jesus that I want us to pay attention to this morning. Why does Jesus remain silent here? What is he up to? Why is he remaining silent? In fact, the only time he, he really speaks, because that's that first moment of quoting Daniel, is to agree with the prosecution. You have said so. Why does he remain silent? I want us to see three things, three brief things here about the silence of Jesus. The first one is this, that Jesus' silence confronts the powerful. Jesus' silence confronts the powerful. So these religious leaders, Herod, Pilate, they all have a lot of power and they are exercising that power to maintain, to build, to protect their own kingdom, status, position, comfort, control, all of that. They are exercising that power. Now Jesus has power too. And if you've been with us as we've gone through the Gospel of Luke, you know that Jesus exercised a lot of power, incredible power. He has been recognized as someone who teaches with authority. But more than that, he can feed 5,000 people with just a few pieces of fish and a few loaves of bread. He can cast out demons. He has healed people who are blind. More than that, he has raised people from the dead. Jesus has an incredible amount of power. And he's not been afraid to exercise that power on behalf of others. But now in this moment when it comes down to his own life, why does Jesus not just meet power with power? I think we get a clue in John chapter 18. Because in John 18, John records a little bit more of the interaction, a little bit more of the conversation between Pilate and Jesus. And again, at one point, Pilate asked this question of Jesus. You know, are, are you a king? And in John 18, Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not of this world. 
This is so key. Because Pilate, Herod, they, they all feel like they're in a position to offer Jesus something. Jesus, if you respond to us here, if you do a miracle, if you go along with this, I can help you. Give me something to work with here, Jesus. I can help you. But Jesus looks at them and says, you have nothing to offer me. You are trying to, to rule over Jerusalem or Judea or, or Galilee. You're, you're trying to build your own kingdom, preserve your own power. And, but my kingdom is not of this world. I'm not trying to control, my, save my life or control this little piece of land somewhere on this globe, that my battle is a cosmic battle, that I am here not to preserve a kingdom over a city, but to save the world. And Herod, Pilate, there's nothing you can do to help me with that. Jesus' silence, it, it confronts the powerful. They can't help him, so he has nothing to say to them. Second thing, Jesus' silence condemns the world. Because again, everybody puts Jesus on trial here. I mean, certainly the religious leaders, Herod, Pilate, but even the crowds who many of them, right, had been gathered uh, welcoming Jesus into Jerusalem. Now they are chanting, crucify him, crucify him, give us Barabbas. Luke, as he constructs this narrative, wants us to see that there is only one true innocent person in this whole story, and it's Jesus. Everyone else is putting Jesus on trial. And, and, and Luke wants us to, to be clear, and including you, dear readers, And we looked at this last week, but, but what one of us, right, at, at some point in our lives hasn't been in a place of by our action or inaction denying Jesus, betraying him, of lying to him or lying about him, of finding ourselves in a position where standing with Jesus, identifying with him, living out his design is either inconvenient or hard or unsafe or costly and making a decision to walk away from him. Luke says, we are right there with them. And Jesus' silence confronts, condemns us all. And Jesus allows it all. In his, his, his silence, it confronts the powerful, it condemns the world. But it also does one last thing. And this is the most important thing for us to see today. The Jesus silence, it also saves a sinner. Jesus' silence saves a sinner. Because again, Pilate is sitting there with the choice of Jesus for Barabbas. And maybe you've read through that and thought, well, it's good for Barabbas. I guess he got, a, got some good luck that day. But have you ever stopped to think about the significance of this moment? Barabbas gets released. So, so what? Isn't this a story about Jesus, not Barabbas anyway? So what? Barabbas gets released. Are you ready for this? Have you ever wondered what Barabbas' name means? Do you know what Barabbas' name means? It's, it's, a, it's a compound word, that name. It's two words put together. Uh, the first part of it, bar, Barabbas, Bar, is 
The word for son, right? You have, ooh, so this would go to a bar mitzvah, right? Or a bat mitzvah, bat is daughter, it's bar son. This is bar son, Abbas, Abba, father. Barabbas' name means son of the father. Do you get that? The son of the father, the guilty son of the father is being released. The truly innocent son of the father is being condemned. I mean, Luke, this is not an accident that the, the, the guy's name is son of the father. In fact, some manuscripts of Matthew even record his first name as Jesus. Jesus was a really common name in the first name in the first century. This is not like it was a Jewish, you know, kind of the Greek form of the name Joshua, the Hebrew name Joshua. There's lots of little Jesus running around in the streets of Jerusalem. His name was probably Jesus, son of the Father. I mean, the irony is so thick here. Again, you have an innocent, the true son of the Father being condemned so that the guilty Bar Abbas, son of the father, goes free. I just haven't been able to get over that. And certainly Luke wants us to hear our voices in the crowd crying out, crucify him, crucify him. We're supposed to identify with those voices in the crowd, recognizing that that we are in that place also. But I think Luke also wants to not only to hear our voices in the crowd, but to see ourselves in Barabbas. To see ourselves in Barabbas. Because hundreds of years before, the truly innocent son of the father stood before a crowd who was calling for the release of the guilty son of the father. The prophet Isaiah wrote these words. This is Isaiah chapter 53, beginning in verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and his wounds, when with his wounds we were healed, all we, like sheep, have gone astray, have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. And listen to this. This is verse 7. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb led is led to the slaughter, like a sheep is before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Right, so Jesus, the most powerful, the most innocent being in the entire creation at this moment or ever, uses his voice not to condemn, but his silence to save. Because of Jesus' silence, Barabbas goes free. He's been declared, Jesus has been declared innocent three times and is condemned. Barabbas, the guilty, is set free. We began our, our time together this morning with the story of two innocent men who were found guilty. 
We end the story this morning with a guilty man who is released and set free because the truly innocent one remains silent. Now, when we think back to those two stories we began with of Kirk and Kwame, we may never, actually I, I hope for all of our sakes, that we will never be able to fully identify with their stories, that we will never be in the situation that they found themselves in. It's interesting though, Jesus knows exactly what their story feels like, doesn't he? So even though we may never be able to fully identify with what Kirk and Kwame went through, we can all identify with Barabbas. We can all identify with Barabbas, the guilty one who is set free. And this blows me away too because Barabbas is, is actually guilty of the very things that Jesus is being accused of, right? The, the, the Jews are saying this guy is an insurrectionist, that he's going to start a riot, he's going to take over. Barabbas actually, actually did those things. Barabbas is actually guilty of those things. And yet Jesus is the one who suffers the punishment for those. And it just, it hit me like heavy this week as I'm reading this text that the things that I am truly guilty of, Those are the things that Jesus died for. I also thought a lot this week about, I wonder what happened to Barabbas after he was released. Because Barabbas does nothing, right? What, a, what an incredible picture of the gospel. Barabbas does nothing. He doesn't say a word. He doesn't lift a finger. And yet, because of what Jesus has done on his behalf, he is released and set free without any effort on his own. But you ever wonder, like, what happened to Barabbas after that? I mean, did he just say, I'm getting out of Jerusalem? Like, I'm out of here. I'm running to, to hide up in a cave. I'm getting as far away from here as I possibly can. Does he, had he ever met Jesus? Like, I wonder, right? Like, Jesus has been to Jerusalem before. Barabbas has been around. This is not a big area. I mean, have they ever encountered, have they seen one another in a crowd? Was Barabbas ever hanging out at the temple at some point when Jesus was there teaching? Had they ever met each other? Did, would they ever meet? I mean, does, does Barabbas see Jesus on the cross? Like, like that, that would have been me? Or maybe he just kind of sees Jesus and thinks that was a get-out-of-jail card. Whew. Go on with his life. I mean, you wonder, does, does he ever live like fully into his name, Bar Abbas, son of the Father, by placing his trust and faith in Jesus? And we don't know. I mean, I did some work this week. I was like, we certainly don't know from the Bible. I was like, is there any traditions or is there any kind of legends about what happened to Barabbas. I don't think we know. I think his story is lost to history. It's probably a great short story or little work of historical fiction that someone could write imagining Barabbas' life after this. Maybe the different directions it could have taken. But friends, we can only wonder about Barabbas. We can only imagine, we can only think, only ponder what his life might have been like. But we don't have to wonder about ours you don't have to wonder about yours. Because by faith in the truly innocent son of the father, we, the guilty sons and daughters of the father, can be adopted into that family. 
and be set free. When we come to see ourselves by faith as the ones who are sons and daughters of the Father who have been set free by Jesus, we can begin to understand the hymn writer who says, my chains fell off, my heart set free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Jesus, silence, saved a sinner that day, changed a life forever. And it has the power to change the life of anyone and everyone, including yours. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that by faith in the truly innocent Son of the Father, that we can become your sons and daughters, fully adopted and cleansed and forgiven and set free. I, I pray now, Lord, that you would give us a new and felt sense, not just an intellectual sort of assent to a truth that, yes, <laughs> I'm kind of like Barabbas, but like a deep sense in our hearts that that was me and that Jesus died in my place. I pray this in his name, by the power of the Spirit, who can bring new life where there is death. Amen. Well, each week we celebrate in communion the wonder, the stunning wonder of Jesus dying for us, of him being our substitute. He even uses this language in the moment of the Passover that I am giving you my body. This is for you in your place. So in a moment here as the band leads us through a song, um, you'll have an opportunity to take communion. There's communion elements on those back tables. If you hadn't had a chance to grab those on your way in, feel free anytime during that song, get up, grab those. Um, and while we, we listen and sing together, feel free at any point during that just to open those communion elements and take them. As Jesus said, on the night he was betrayed, the night before, we're, we're looking at this text. He broke bread, he gave it to the disciples, said, this is my body which is given for you. And this is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Allow this meal to nurse you, stoke your faith, renew you and refresh you in the reality that Jesus has given himself for you.